clarity around your passion and courage to pursue it is the number one thing for success in many industries. Is it the case also in digital tourism? Check out this last out of a series of interviews with Nick Hall, founder of digital tourism think tank, where we're interviewing him about his own personal story of moving from media through European policymaking all the way to digital tourism. You will hear also a lot about the role of women for the management of his own business and his vision for European leadership. I hope you've listened to the previous episodes where we went into the consequences of COVID lockdown on European tourism business and the opportunities used or not by many of the entrepreneurs. So I hope you liked it. Don't hesitate to leave your comments, likes, and share it with every everybody around you who you think could benefit from a bit more wisdom into how to repurpose their tourism business in times of COVID lockdown and beyond. So Nick, here we go with our third episode in the first one out of a series that you all of you can check out previously in the archive. We went into the post-COVID travel tourism paralysis and how the businesses are feeling these days. In the second one, we went more into the business strategies and the mindsets necessary to embrace the digital transformation opportunities. And so in this one, we will go more into your personal story because you've been in the digital tourism space for so long. You've also been involved advising us at the European policy level so I'd be curious to hear how these two uh, worlds uh, can be reconciled what are the lessons that you've learned along the way so why don't you start sharing a little bit more about your personal entrepreneurial journey and what is your recipe for success if you want to succeed as a small entrepreneur from Europe in the digital tourism space Sure, yeah, thanks a lot. Well, it's great to be back. And um, I think maybe to start off with that, uh, answering that question, perhaps it's best to start you know, with where, where I got started in the career that I have now. And it's slightly unconventional and slightly different, I think, especially when we reflect on the kind of Brussels bubble and uh, at a kind of European Commission um, kind of way of understanding the world. Um, personally, I studied photographic arts. Um, I, did, I got a bachelor in that. Um, and then I continued my career pretty much uh, from that point onwards um, as a kind of entrepreneur, an accidental entrepreneur is probably the best way to put it. And the reason I kind of want to start with that is that um, I think this is what I realized in Brussels and the, the time I spent working, especially um, and, you know, involved in European policy and tourism and things like that, is I was a real outsider. Um, you know, very few people had that kind of education or that kind of background. And, um, you know, there, there was a kind of sense which I never really appreciated it until I stepped a little bit, created a little bit more distance from that, a sense of elitism, which, uh, which in itself poses uh, barriers um, to kind of entering that environment and to being part of that. Um, I'm somebody who's very, quite adaptable, I think, um, and I can, you know, put myself into almost any situation and feel moderately comfortable with it. Um, so for me, that, that was something to just kind of a challenge to embrace. But I, I kind of look back at that and actually think, you know, there's so much emphasis and credibility placed on the kind of level of study and the field of study. And that's always the introduction that's made. Oh, what did you study? You know, what's your background? 
And I think this, this in itself kind of creates a, a barrier from others entering that, which, which I know is so desperately needed. So I just want to kind of maybe start with that because everything that followed uh, from that has just gone in a very natural progression. Um, I started... Wait, what, what's on my mind now that it's not just, <clears throat> excuse me, the level of education creating the barrier, but it's also the expectation that we can put ourselves in the boxes of having studied law or economics, typically in this part of the yeah, industry. And so what I will be interested to hear from you is how the interdisciplinarity comes into making tourism businesses successful. And it's also one of the biggest questions that I'm discussing with young graduates these days when they feel like they're forced to choose one box. Whereas I think that the success of, of the future actually resides in being able to draw into the skill sets of multiple boxes at the same time. So thanks for raising that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've talked a lot about creativity through this series and it's what's needed to get through the, the kind of world that we live in. Um, and, you know, I think this is an essential skill set that needs to be really part of education. And it's quite that you see huge cultural differences between different countries, especially on what is the right way to educate and, and um, raise children, for example. So, um, yeah, in terms of my career, I, uh, I actually came across a really great opportunity when I was studying. Uh, I wrote for The Guardian. Um, I wrote a six month column um, for The Guardian's travel supplement. And I set myself a mission, which the, the readers voted on. And this is how, I, how this opportunity came about. I said, I want to travel the whole of Europe and test and experience every single low-cost airline and go to all of these new places that nobody had ever heard of, frankly. Um, and, well, you know, in, uh, in kind of Western Europe, places like Reus and uh, Girona, which we all know now very well, because we, you know, the world is very different now. But, you know, in 2002 to 2004, people haven't really discovered Europe that much. They weren't familiar with all of these different places and, you know, the, the heritage and what strengths they had. Right through to somewhere like Zeshov in, um, in Poland, you know, and, and everywhere in between. Um, and I set myself on a mission that rather than as a, as a young um, student at the time, rather than go on a gap year um, with an interrail pass, that because the low-cost airlines were just mushrooming everywhere and flights were sort of one euro, literally one euro, including tax, um, that I was just going to go to as many places as possible, take advantage of that. Open Skies was really new and all the airlines, you know, the competition was high. Most of them have since folded because the industry couldn't sustain that level of competition. Um, and I, you know, I kind of relished that opportunity, really. Um, and I, you know, built quite a large following aside from hopefully creating some really interesting articles. And we were the first, um, you know, they experimented as a newspaper, The Guardian is, uh, is a printed newspaper, but they've been one of the most forward thinking newspapers to be digital as well, right back at the time. So I created a blog as well as a Saturday printed uh, article about where I was traveling that week. And um, that kind of just launched everything that followed. Um, you know, I found that I really loved this. I really loved just experiencing and, and being in different places. Um, and I love the adrenaline of just always moving. <laughs> so um, I, when that finished, because it was a, only a six month um, stint, when that finished, I created a podcast. I created a website called NetJetters and a podcast um, called uh, iPod Traveler. And uh, we, we built up just a huge following. We had around 25,000 subscribers back in 2004. And these were very, very loyal subscribers to the podcast um, that 
were sending gifts from all over the world. Um, I had one listener that was in Libya. She, she wrote to me once and she said, you know, I live in a remote uh, village and I only get to visit um, the, the city Tripoli uh, once a month. And every time I go, I go and download your podcasts and I take them back. And I just wanted to write to you and say, what a window on the world that was. I just remember that so strong because I couldn't believe it. I mean, I was, you know, it was such a surprise. And um, on the, uh, you know, another con trust was um, a listener in New York who, who just was a huge fan and she started sending gifts and it really showed me the, the power of, um, of the internet um, and the power to have your own voice and your own platform to share whatever you want to share which is exactly what you're doing uh, with this podcast and um, to, to find people who are interested to listen to that. We did that, you know, it was a lot of fun um, and, you know, we talked about different destinations every week, mainly from memory and a lot of factual inaccuracies, but it wasn't really about creating a travel guide. It was about having a lot of fun, a lot of banter and kind of exchanging in that. I um, think it's also one of the, sorry, it's kind of a yeah. long story that we're going into, but what again popped up in my mind is this uh, point that you were making previously about daring to step into whatever you feel like doing and just start experimenting and playing with because you shouldn't get too obsessed about whatever people think about you especially at the beginning when the following is so small you don't have too much of reputation risk there so i think that's one of the biggest lessons that we're trying to communicate here is just there to start experimenting and see where it brings you and that's i guess eventually how you then shifted into the space of setting up your think tank where you are working now Exactly. Yeah, I think, yeah, that's a really great point. Having no inhibitions and, and sometimes, you know, having no former career helps you do that as well. So you don't really care what other people think and just going for whatever you're passionate about. And, um, you know, then that led us to our first customer that just approached. Uh, so I said, oh, wow, how do I do this? I'm going to have to create a company that they want, they want my business. So I made an offer and then created a company after that. Um, and then everything just kind of followed that. I spent um, five years working at the European Travel Commission. Um, at some point, the podcast... Maybe we can explain here that this is not an entity of European Commission or European Union. No, most people outside of, of uh, the European Commission do, do think it is part of the European Commission. And I always explain, actually, it was a four-person NGO <laughs> at the time that was just focused on... Uh, promoting Europe um, uh, in long-haul markets on behalf of all the tourist boards. So it was basically a membership organization. Um, and I joined that because at some point the, the podcast business, which came about very naturally, tapered off. The demand just uh, weakened. It, you know, it was a kind of thing of the moment. It's funny how it's come back now. And, um, you know, I looked at new opportunities. And so I saw a job as a web administrator. Um, you know, it wasn't particularly a web administrator, but I thought that sounds great. Went for that and then very quickly, because partly because it was a small organization, um, moved to, to become the acting executive director of that organization after there were a few changes. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's going back to what I was saying about kind of relishing an opportunity. I saw the potential of this organization to do something really, really strong and positive for its members. Um, and I knew that I had, you know, I was capable to kind of do that. So um, that's where I really, really kind of became very, very familiar with the political environment. And we worked with, you know, the then President Tajani to 
uh, to put in a place a new accor, which would give a lot of support for tourism, and that that was one of the kind of biggest accomplishments. Um, and now it's very well funded, and um, the European Travel Commission is also very well funded in order to do the work that they do. So for me, that was a kind of diversion from the entrepreneurialism. I kind of put that creative and entrepreneurial um, drive into that, um, like you know, like it was my own, basically. And um, but like any diversion, I guess it's very valuable for whatever you're doing because you got that exposure to the policy and public exactly. governance space, which you're now working with very closely. Exactly, and I think that's also what's really interesting about that is this almost overnight having to understand policy understand the relationships, understand who the institutions are and what they do. Um, because of that mission to, to try and build that relationship, in that case, uh, back then it was also repairing the relationship, to, to try and get more support for tourism. And, um, you know, I think that's not the normal route that people kind of enter um, that, that environment. Uh, for me, it was something that, you know, my passion was still, I had a lot of ideas that I wanted to develop. And so, um, rather than kind of go for that uh, and stay in that, I decided to, to leave and create a digital tourism think tank. And this, uh, this was created in 2012 um, as a platform to bring the whole tourism industry together. And it's since then uh, grown to be, you know, really the kind of leading platform and community of tourism destinations, connecting and sharing knowledge on data, digital, and all the current trends. Um, so yeah, what a journey. This is so interesting, the way you've been shifting from media, student work, um, international NGO policy world, and now back to business. Can you talk a little bit more about reconciling that pull to gain experience from an unknown world versus the passion? Because we hear a lot from young professionals who would like to work in policy that it's sometimes not always compatible with their passion to develop their own project and be more yeah on an entrepreneurial journey how do you if you can take yourself back to those moments when you were working in the policy uh, world be it in the european travel commission or or engaging with the european institutions when you had that moments of frustration thinking about like do i really need to do this to myself i'm an entrepreneur in my heart and like i'm just gonna drop it and go back to my passion how do you navigate that period of your career and deciding whether it's still a valuable experience or it's actually not fulfilling anymore and it would be more worthwhile if you went through that struggle being in your own company instead yeah, I think for, at, at the time, you know, it was the right thing. And at the time, it didn't seem like the wrong thing at all. Uh, even now, looking back, I think um, that it's quite exciting to think about how, you know, you might be able to influence or change politics, um, because there is so much work to be done, actually. And I think, you know, just as you're doing, you're, you're, you're creating uh, and developing a kind of creative layer between the institutions and, and people. And I think for me that, um, the, the drive and the motivation was actually entrepreneurial. I had a lot of ideas. I had a lot of thoughts about how things could be better, how things could be different. Um, and I felt very comfortable in being able to communicate um, both those ideas, but also um, communicate between people and, and try to help uh, different views and different sides see, you know, see each other's kind of perspectives. I think though, what I would say is that there is such a void between the institutions and the political world and citizens and the public and, and businesses. 
And, um, you know, I think that both, you know, an, uh, following a career as an entrepreneur is a career. Following a career in a political environment is also a career. But those two should converge a bit better, I think. Um, there are great examples of business people, especially in, in America, business people who've gone into politics. They don't always work out very well. But I think yeah, that's the thing. You would want to be linking the two paths, but then there's, I mean, it's a whole different conversation of revolving doors there. And how can we uh, benefit from the experience from both worlds to an extent that stays beneficial instead of damaging to one of the two sides? I think what I've seen is that those two worlds are very much out of touch with each other. They don't really understand what each other do. And um, maybe there isn't this real respect for, for each other either. From you know, from the institution side in terms of truly understanding maybe sometimes the struggles um, of businesses, it's, it's quite theoretical. So there is an uh, empathy for it. There is a commitment to serve them and to support them, but it's, it's not experienced. And I think that lack of experiencing it can be a really big problem and challenge for, for you know, for and those. So this that... is a beautiful opening to one of my biggest passions, which is how do we transform European leadership and what kind of behaviors and values we would like to see lived on an everyday basis by leaders at the European level. And so what is your reading of that? How do we, because it's not about where you work, it's about how you work on yourself and what is the leadership that you're bringing into a conversation and collaboration with whoever is relevant for the thing that you're working on. So what do you see as the desirable future? How would you like to see the European leadership redesigned or transformed to another level so that you think it's more connected and impactful? Yeah, maybe the first thing to say is when I applied for the job at the European Travel Commission, one of the, uh, the first interview question or statement I made was, um, what, you know, what do I consider myself? And I said, I consider myself a European citizen. Now, that probably sounds completely crazy as, as someone who's British and uh, Irish. I think that's not something that you would expect to hear today. Um, but I think, you know, that sense of being part of something is, is important for, you know, for those who are not in those institutions. And I think uh, we have seen a lot of challenges and problems. Um, you know, Brexit is the most obvious and visible one. But I think, you know, this, uh, this feeling of being disconnected, this feeling of what do they do for us, is, is really a problem that needs to be understood and addressed in the right way. Um, and I think that means not having a, a kind of top-down delivery of a solution, um, not making an assumption, which, you know, I certainly have a lot of assumptions about why that is. But I think, you know, it's very dangerous to almost make an educated assumption about what that is, because it's also about the lived experiences of those people. I think what would be really amazing would be to really do something radical with um, the relationships, um, to not change the fundamental values of, you know, of European politics or society or anything else, but really, really do something radical in how that exchange takes place. I think um, if we look at the European Commission, which has come under a lot of criticism, uh, especially in that Brexit debate, a lot of people said unelected and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There is a sense of distance and uh, lack of accountability um, that, you know, that people feel, even if it's not founded. Um, and I think what would be really interesting is to see how can we how can we change the career process so that there is experience in that? You know, we do an internship 
to get an experience in a business, um, you know, could there be a sense of uh, exchanging experiences between, you know, everyday citizens and people that are, you know, having a career in a political environment? I think that is something which could be really humbling for a lot of people involved. So really trying to understand their situation, to kind of take off the suit, if you like, and just, you know, just um, experience someone else's situation. I think we also need to open that conversation wider um, to involve everybody in defining what happens, what decisions are made, how things are shaped. We need to stop talking about stakeholders. We need to stop. I have to interrupt you there because you know it's impossible for us to talk to everybody, right? And so then once you launch a, some kind of public consultation, then you run into all kinds of barriers about a regular citizen being interested, understand and, and capable of providing a relevant opinion and then managing it some ways. Obviously, we don't have an army of people uh, who would be yeah. for managing. Uh, so what would be your like concrete vision of how would you go about it if you had a chance to set it up? Yeah, so I mean, we use design thinking and human-centered design in business, and you know, a lot of the big firms do, um, and they create so-called sponsored users, for example, which are focus groups of real people, um, so they can monitor and understand their real experiences. I think, re you know, research is an you know, we invest very heavily in research, but research itself can be conducted in a different way, in a more pluralistic way, in a more open way. And um, that collaborative response from society can also happen in a, a, much more, uh, a much more representative way because of that large scale contribution that can take place. I think with digital um, and with all the resources that exist locally as well, it is possible to do things differently, but it requires a complete turnaround of how, how things are done, how um, consultations are conducted, and how input is gathered and um, you know that that is really doing things quite differently to how we you know how we traditionally and normally do things yeah which is a big conversation that we're not going to be able to complete now so I would like to bring it back into your own business and look at how this new kind of leading actually manifests in your own uh, company and look specifically at the women's role in there we've had a conversation about a big part of your team being women and so I'd be Curious to hear if you see any specific added value in what we call feminine leadership. Obviously, the women are a perfect representation of a feminine tourism experience, so it's already that. But obviously, uh, there might be a different kind of communication styles and, and value creation that you can notice in your in the way you've been bringing this innovation into your own company and then to your clients. So, talk to us a little bit more about the added value of this diversity in the management of your own company. Yeah, I think maybe, um, yeah, just to, to sort of pick up on what you've said is that we are a kind of female dominant business. Uh, and we, we always have been. Um, generally, you know, it's either 90% or sort of two thirds women, but we're also a small business. So just to put things into context. Um, what I've seen is that uh, whether that's, you know, whatever the reason for that is, it's uh, tourism is an industry where you have um, a strong, uh, you know, very strong opportunities for, I think, female leadership to really flourish. But this idea of that glass ceiling does seem to exist, especially when we look at, um, you know, 
uh, look at some parts of the tourism industry. I'm Is it the big the, players, like the big platforms or the biggest operators? Uh, certainly the bigger players um, and also the, um, you know, at a kind of institutional level as well. Um, there's not, certainly not the case everywhere. Um, and it's certainly a very rapidly changing picture. Um, but it has been the case traditionally. And if you look back at any historic photos of boards and, you know, even uh, looking back at European Travel Commission that those board um, and General Assembly photos um, kind of speak for themselves. And I just remember that back then being really critical of that, but also feeling, you know, really unable to make any change to that because of, you know, the, the lack of power to, to change other people's boards. Um, so I think there, you know, it's a female dominated industry, at least that's been my experience. And that sense of frustration that I have is that it's female dominated, yet the leadership doesn't seem to be female dominated, it seems to be a complete disconnect from the reality. And looking back at our own business, I think, um, well, this is where it's a challenge, right? Because if you founded the business, <laughs> you are, you know, by, by nature, the leader of the business. And, um, you know, sometimes you almost feel guilty having a kind of view on this and then seemingly kind of uh, taking the top spot. But that, that's what it is to own a business as well. Um, I think, you know, it's, we've always really championed uh, women to develop, to grow and to try and kind of reach whatever their potential is and, and just have no barriers to achieving that. Um, and it's quite hard to put that in place in a small business um, other than just to rally behind um, those team members and to, to really, really champion their work. And for me, I think one of the key things is to try and give confidence and to try and sh believe in that potential and to try and develop that potential. Um, and to recognize, I think, that it's not always um, this, you know, it's not always about this very traditional notion of leadership either. To recognize that there's a really, you know, a huge diversity of skills and capabilities and talents which come into leadership. And I always talk about kind of leadership with a small L because some of the best leaders are, you know, very focused and passionate on what they do and they're able to inspire others to, to follow them uh, because of that passion. So um, leadership not, is almost a side product. Exactly. It's, it's certainly not about being the, the face of, you know, um, you know, it's about showing my example, basically. Um, and I think right now this is, this is something which, um, which needs to be proactively addressed in tourism. I, you know, and I think that's maybe the step that hasn't been taken yet if we look at a large scale. Um, what are the role models? Who would you recommend us to check out and, and follow when it comes to bringing this leadership that you have in mind into management of a tourism business in Europe? Yeah, um, so individual role models. I think uh, one of the people I have the most admiration for would be uh, a woman called Laura Alto. She's the CEO of Helsinki Marketing. And I've often uh, referred to her as someone who is just resolutely um, passionate and committed uh, to the work that she does. And, you know, she, by, by being a CEO of a, of a destination, she obviously finds herself you know, in some sort of political um, associations too, but, but doesn't allow that to come into that and, and is just absolutely committed and focused to sort of serving um, the city that she's, um, she's responsible for kind of developing the image for and her team and bringing them to, to produce really great things. And 
actually the result of that leadership is in the outcome of their work, um, which, is, which is just brilliant. Um, so I think, you know, that would be just one, one great example of someone who I think is a very positive uh, female leader. I think on a business level, uh, we often yeah, That's what I was going to ask, was your role model or a company to follow when it comes yeah. to disruption and innovation of a kind that you yeah, um, appreciate? I think, you know, we've always admired, um, well, a couple of huge firms. So one would be IBM. I think they, they incorporate values very, very deeply into the, the you know, the, the direction of the business. And um, they recently had the Think IBM conference. And the, the discussion and conversation from beginning to end was about values and about how we improve, um, you know, and, and create a more equal society. So... I think this is something that has to be rooted in the, the drive and determination of the company to actually achieve a sense of change and difference. Um, another company is, we also use this, uh, we work with this company a lot called Asana. Um, it's a small step, but I think it's an example of what every business can do is they have uh, an Asana women blog and they create content on a routine basis. And it, yeah, it's a simple step. I don't know the ins and outs of their operations. Uh, but I would expect that they also reflect the, those values in the kind of hierarchical setup as well. Um, and so I think, you know, it starts by recognizing and it start, starts by champion, championing. Uh, but I think it can follow through with uh, a determination and a commitment to change. And um, trying to, try to empathize with what it, you know, what is the qualities, what is the difference that needs to happen in order for that change to take place? And I think this conversation is, you know, particularly relevant right now when we've seen this kind of global movement around Black Lives Matter and the same kind of, um, the same struggle and anxiety and challenges that are faced there in terms of um, being, you know, that, that equal representation, being viewed the same, not being viewed as different and having the same opportunities. And I think it's something, you know, that, that we really need to um, incorporate into um, that sense of values and almost a commitment, not just to do things equally, but also to change and correct um, kind of wrongs from the past and incorporate that into how we can do things in the future. That's a big one. And uh, I think it's a beautiful conclusion of our conversation because it always takes one conversation at a time to collectively help us uh, move forward where we would like the society to be. And so when my, my last question for this series, and thank you once again for all these three episodes that we've done together on the future of tourism in these very special times, is what would be your main advice for somebody starting now? If with all this wisdom that you've gathered, we often say what would be your advice to your 18 or 15 year old self but if you were starting a digital tourism company now how would you go about it how would you avoid probably the failures or the lessons that you've learned along your way um, to build something that has a chance of really rocking it because the competition is so huge and the consequences of uh, making these little mistakes in the design of the company can be big. So what would be your number one tip? Um, believe in something. Um, I think, you know, believe in something that can formulate and become a passion. 
and follow we've that. We've been discussing in the first episode, create a business around the love of your life, the passion. So all the, let's say yoga businesses as an example, is it that what you have in mind? Um, yes. And, you know, I think passion will, will find itself in different ways with different people. It's shaped by our own lived experiences. So passion for some people will be what they enjoy doing and doing what you enjoy doing will always make you happy. And, you know, if, if your life can be built around that, that's a great, that's a great accomplishment, even if you never become uh, a big business. Um, but equally... So source of a driver for you to then push through whatever's gonna come your way as a difficulty, is it that? Yeah, because success will naturally follow that. And your passion for what you do will always help you to find the right answers as well. You won't be left searching or clueless as to you know how to take things forward. And then I a follow-up question to that: How narrow do you have to be in defining your passion? Because that's again one of the big questions I'm being asked by the people who have like so many interests. And when they're at the beginning of their career, it feels like an expensive choice to be made to bank on one activity that you love. Yeah, I think um, it's it's sometimes maybe a mistake to think you need to quit what you're doing to follow your passion. Um, so you can see how you can incorporate your fashion, your passion into the, the life you have. And if, if it's not compatible, uh, then ask yourself, you know, is the life you, you have the right life? And um, if you're, you know, as an example, passionate about yoga, well, perhaps there's a way for that to coexist with your career, um, inside your career. Perhaps you can change a company culture by introducing that there. Um, likewise, if you know you feel you have a lot of creativity, or you really love, you know, maybe you love engagement um, or, or working with people, um, take and find opportunities to do more of that. Um, you know, don't hold back from what you can do, and I guess don't let others kind of uh, restrict your capability or your potential to do that. And if you know if there are barriers in the way, um, work to remove them. Um, I think you know this is this is kind of about finding a determination to do what you're you know what you love um and if you're in a very regular situation like having a job having an employer and having you know 80 percent of your job that you don't like and percent that you love you know that it's also about having that conversation saying i'm really passionate about this because if you can communicate your passion and show the value of what it can bring then it may also be very positive, you know, in that case for your employer, for example. So it's, it's also, it's up to the individual, I think, to, to show who they are and to be themselves and to bring, to bring that out in whatever they do, um, whether it's professional or, or private, uh, but to really pursue that. Beautiful. Thank you very much for all this uh, very insightful and, and vulnerable and personal sharing at the same time. I'm looking forward to the comments of everybody to see what are the passionate thoughts uh, on their mind now as they're listening to us. And thank you once again and wish you all the best. I think one, one last thing is don't ever let anybody tell you that you can't do something or that you can't achieve something or, you know, that it's not the right thing for you to do. I think this is this is just a, a really, really key message for young people, um, maybe whose parents are, are trying to box them into a particular career, uh, for employees who don't feel like they, they're doing what they can really bring to that company. And, you know, in the case of um, 
different groups, you know, whether you're a woman and you can't, you know, there are barriers in the way, you know, don't let those barriers exist. Don't let anybody kind of create those barriers for you and, and break them down. I think that's, that's also key. Very warrior message for the conclusion. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For follow-up, you can find us on all major podcast platforms and all social media platforms, including our Instagram, Lights on Europe. So feel free to go there now and leave us your review, likes, feedback, as well as tips on who would you like to hear interviewed next time. Bye!